So we're in Ruth chapter 3, right? And this is third chapter. I think if you count September, it would be fourth, fourth message. Uh, and so we're going to try to do three in one and four in one and wrap it up, wrap it up next Sunday night. Um, and so the outline so far, if you'll remember, Ruth chapter one was redemption. The whole theme of the book is redemption. Another word that we've been using that's come up, it's going to come up again tonight is hope. We're going to focus that word and center it in redemption. Redemption orchestrated and unseen was chapter one. Redemption prepared and personified was chapter two. Chapter three is, and I actually changed this one from the first version. I changed the title. Uh, Redemption pursued and granted. I'm sorry, I didn't change that title. I changed the one to chapter two. (laughs) So switch what I just said. Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm already confused. As long as I don't say Booth or Roas tonight like I did last time. I think I'll be in good shape. Um, so when we left Ruth at the end of chapter 2, with that one word we just pointed to that can, that can change a person's life, attitude, perspective, even will to survive, if you remember that word, was hope, right? And at this point, Naomi's demeanor has drastically changed from chapter 1. She's moved from a place of, we'll call it desperately clutching to the knowledge that God's in control, that being the only sense, the only thing that made any sense of her circumstances in chapter 1, right, even though she wasn't happy about any of that, to a place where, well, she can dream again. She, she has some hope. She has a, a vision, right, of something beyond where she's at. She can start to see a life that is not all loss and grief and pain and suffering. She sees here at the end of this chapter the possibility of joy again, right? And while it never erases the pain of our past, whether we think of the pain of the consequences of your own sin or the, or the grief of a loss or whatever, whatever it is, joy, not time alone, but joy, it can heal and it can move us from that place. And joy comes from hope and hope comes from faith. Faith in one place, faith in one person, Faith only one way, and that is rightly responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ through repentance of sin and trust in him and his finished work at the cross, right? So that's where it all rests. Now, one thought looking back. See if this makes sense. Never release, never lose your faith and trust in the sovereignty and faithfulness of your God, of our God. Okay? You can't ever lose that. No matter what else is going on, remember that's where Naomi found herself in chapter 1. Never lose that, even if that's the only thing you're hanging on to, because that, under the surface, breeds hope. Right, And hope, like we've said before, albeit sometimes slow in coming, it, it, it incubates, it preserves joy that we're talking about, right? And that's where Naomi, we find ourselves in the middle of this chapter. It's kind of neat. Naomi is catching a glimpse of, of a hope that she didn't know she had that maybe can bring some joy into her life again. But she also knows, as we're going to see in this chapter, that for that hope to be realized, she has to take some action. Or her through Ruth. Somebody has to take some action. Um, now, before we get to the action taken here in chapter 3, I'm sure many of you in this room tonight are familiar with the story. I think we have to be careful to point out a couple of reminders. We've already talked about them through the series. One, first, your actions do not earn grace or lose grace or it would not be grace. 
It would be a wage. It would be a reward, right? That grace is freely given, and it's God's to give. Um, our actions, whatever they are, should be because of what he's done, because of grace, and a reflection of the grace that we've received from God. In other words, who we are in Christ should determine what we do. And it, our identity in Christ determines what we do, and never the other way around. Right? Okay. Second, the specifics of these actions in this story are not a precedent for us. That's going to become clear uh, why that is. And, and I think it'll make sense. And hopefully this will be one that you might want to share with some other people that, that might come to mind as we're talking about it. But they're not a, not a specific precedent for us. Not specifically. And we need to point that out because there's some parts of this story that could easily be said is, are risky, risque even, <laughs> Certainly for this time, scandalous, some would say. And we're going to see why in just a little while. So we need to establish that while Ruth's specific action is not your action, when you decide to take action, right, in pursuing righteousness in your life, incoming or outgoing, you want to make sure you do it rightly, safely, morally speaking, uh, and with integrity. The reason I say this, that's going, to, that's going to become clear in just a little bit. So Naomi hatches a plan, right, here in chapter 3, to grab hold of hope, to pursue the righteousness offered to, to chase the joy that just is an insight out in the distance. Uh, you might say to activate, maybe is a good word, the grace and favor that has been set in motion. So and this, this is the first one of the series, by the way, that has points that are alliterated. I'm not always good at that, but I, I was a good preacher tonight. The first is we see the plan. And the plan is going to be in Ruth, the first five verses of verse. Before we read the text, let's pray and then we're going to do it. We're going to do it in sections. I usually read the whole text and then pray and I didn't do that tonight. So let's pray. God, thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the truth that we see there. Thank you, Father, that the whole book, that you wrote a book, that book is about Jesus and it all points to him. Thank you for that, Lord. Help us to see that tonight. But also, Lord, help us to see the practical things as we, as we strive to live that gospel and live our faith and to rest in the grace of God through our circumstances, which as many people are in this room, there's that many different struggles and circumstances, Lord, uh, because you love us each and you want to work in each of our lives. So I thank you for your word. You speak not loud, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. We'll give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the first five verses of Ruth chapter 3, here we go. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she, Ruth, replied, all that you say, I will do. Now, I don't think we need to dig very deep to see the brashness of this of this plan the impetuousness of naomi and naomi it was her plan but ruth was gonna have to be the one to act on it right ruth was gonna have to be the one to flesh it out and i think we have already seen ruth's devotion to naomi and her trust in naomi and her love for naomi she's worked hard she's humbled herself she's been faithful in every way but this brazen is the word that comes comes to mind uh questionably considering the customs of the time inappropriate Scandalous that a mother-in-law would push her daughter to take such a risk, which raises to me a question again about this relationship. How far did Naomi really have to push? 
Not just Ruth's relationship with Naomi, but her interest in Boaz at this point. Notice Naomi's question in verse 1. My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Right? She's just as concerned with Ruth's well-being, hope, joy, happiness as she is with her own. And what Naomi has suggested is definitely moving towards some intimacy between Ruth and Boaz. Right? So, I mean, and this is just the way my mind works somewhere. Is that some kind of moral flexibility there on the part of Naomi to grab hold of this thing? Or, or did she see a hope and joy for Ruth as well as herself here? Maybe she had seen something. I mean, you know, we know that this story is cloaked, is, is a gospel story cloaked in a romance, right? So had she seen something in Ruth's eyes that said, I, maybe she's interested in Boaz. Is there a romantic side? Of course, there is a romantic side to this story. But I always think that we should be quick to point out, as we will see, that although a romantic interest had obviously developed between Boaz and Ruth, it was... We will call it a holy one. Wrought in adversity. Nurtured through godly character. Which we went to great lengths in chapter 2 to talk about. Pursued with integrity. And directed very clearly by God himself. Right? With all that said though. It was indeed pursued. And we're going to see this encounter unfold tonight. We also have to keep in mind though. The ultimate story that's being foretold. That's the gospel. That is Christ coming for us. That is that God extends his favor to those who seek refuge under his wings by faith in Christ. Also talked about in chapter 2. This version of that story just happens to be cloaked in a lovely romance. We are, after all, the bride of Christ. Why would that make us uncomfortable to... With the thought that he pursued us as the bride should be. Right? The modern folk rock singer-songwriter, Joel O'Jay, who wrote Out on the Blue, Dwayne likes so much, wrote a lot of his songs from his first album with that kind of thought. The idea that Christ pursues us and that can be reflected in a proper view of romance. You don't want to stay there. That's not the only side. But it, it can be creatively and artistically rendered there. And I think that's what we see here. So Ruth, again, is to wash herself and get dressed. She's getting ready to be presentable. Right? Uh, we might borrow I mean, a more modern expression, or at least, I don't know, it's kind of modern. I remember my mom saying it all the time growing up, that she's putting her face on. <laughs> right? There's another little tidbit here, though, that I think, at least to me, screams for our attention. It got mine. It was that she was to wash herself and to anoint herself. That indicates to me that there was more to her preparation than just cleaning up and getting pretty. The physical suggestion of that word is, is perfume, which tells us, right, there's maybe there's still those romantic overtones when you think about it like that. But the spiritual suggestion is the one we need to pay attention to. In the Old Testament, anointing of oil, anointing oil speaks of the presence and working of the Holy Spirit. And Ruth was preparing herself in the ultimate scheme of things, spiritually as well as physically, to pursue this redemption that was in the customs of Israel. I think Naomi maybe understood this, even if Ruth didn't. That's why she told her to wash and anoint herself. Redemption for her at this point had become a very personal matter, also because she had 
maybe sincerely had to begun to maybe be attracted to this kinsman redeemer. Now, there's two things here, and this is going to explain kind of what I said earlier just a little bit. First of all, so it should be with us and Christ. What I mean by that is that we should, through the anointing presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, actively and ongoingly, pursue our Redeemer. Falling in love with, more with Him every day as much as it is our part to do so. Right? We know that we have to depend on God's work in us, but we should pursue as well. Dr. A.W. Tozer once said this. He said, If God were to take the Holy Spirit out of this world, much of what the church is doing would go right on and nobody would know the difference. If we take any action without passionately pursuing the Holy Spirit's presence and power in our lives, we take said action fruitlessly. So we should always seek to anoint ourselves, which you already have the presence of the Holy Spirit abiding, living within you. If you are a believer, He's there. And we seek to pursue Him and develop that through the basic stuff, reading the Word, spending time in prayer, participating in worship. It's not a, not a complicated process to anoint yourself in the Holy Spirit. And then you pursue Him in worship. Second, is, and this is, I don't know how pertinent this is to this, this crowd here tonight, but maybe, maybe if, if it is, and maybe, I don't know, maybe you know someone else that can hear this. The second is this. It is indeed, and I think you guys know this, it is indeed possible and admirable to pursue and have a romantic relationship with someone that is blessed by God, holy in practice, anchored in integrity, and still even intensely romantic. Take a look at Song of Solomon, right? So that's possible. The only disclaimer here that I'll add, aside from the ones of obviously protecting ourselves from sexual purity, or that's when we rephrase that, protecting our sexual purity, not from it, that would be bad, and keeping Christ as the most important, uh, as most important in that relationship. The disclaimer I'll add is that, and this is something you can give to your kids, I believe this. I know not everybody agrees with me, but I'm the one with the microphone. I think we can begin to dispel this myth that is especially prevalent in our culture of I'm waiting for the one. This overly romantic idea. What I mean by that is this, and there's a larger discussion this goes with that I'll be glad to have with you later. But I'm talking about that, that, that sappy, romantic comedy moment that our teenagers, especially our girls are longing for and are convinced are going to happen, you know, when time stands still and there's a spotlight on the other and the skies part, right? And the music starts to play. This is what I say to young people when I'm talking to them about this matter. A better way to think about this is to not wait and look for the one, but look for the right kind of one. That's something practical and helpful that you can teach them. Look for one that loves Jesus. This is what I tell my kids. Look for somebody who, who loves Jesus. Look for someone who is practicing their faith and is, is proper and correct in their biblical theology. Is that a question for a first date? Maybe not, but it is vitally important. <laughs> it is vitally important. I love your eyes. What's your view on Calvinism? No, maybe not, right? But, <laughs> but considering particularly the one issue of sexuality that is prominent, prominent that I will tell you there's a good portion of kids that we know, some 
There are kids in our church that do not think that homosexuality is a sin. I know because I've talked to them. Right? So when you're talking about, when you're trying to teach your kids about who to pursue, proper biblical worldview on everything. That's my son's number two. He told me just the other day. Number one, they got, they got to know Jesus. They got to love Jesus. Number two, they have to have the right biblical views about a couple of key issues. I'm like, yes. So anyway, so now we know all of that, right? And, I, and the reason I point to that is this, this particular plan would not have worked out rightly and righteously if it had not been for Ruth and, more importantly, in this scene we're going to see the character of Boaz, which God had forged and Naomi recognized, right? So Naomi lays out the plan and Ruth agrees. And we mentioned there was some risk in that, right? So after the plan, we see the peril. And the peril is in verses 6 to 7. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now, in case it's not apparent to you, here's some of the peril. Number one, they're alone in the dark. Like this group, yeah, we get that. (laughs) There is, in fact, an opportunity for a sin, mistake, an indiscretion here. It's there. It's not taken, but the opportunity is there. The uncovering of his feet, there's some diversity about the comments about that meaning, specifically what that means, but we do know that it is a very intimate and intentional act that clearly pointed towards a covenant male-female relationship, marriage. And the romantic, even... There I use the word seductive overtones here and that her action are thick. They're thick. And that made me stop. Was this, was this a flaw? Did Naomi tell her the wrong thing here? Was this, a, was this a risk of immorality in order to pursue righteousness? Right? I can only think of one reason that God would have included this in this plan, in this story. One thing that Naomi knew she could count on and that God knew he had developed to a point of reliability... Again, we spent a whole lot of time talking about it in chapter two, chapter 2, and that is the character of Ruth and Boaz. It cannot be overstated that that is vitally important in the way this story plays out. They are people of faith, integrity, humility, testimony, devotion, faithfulness. And they, along with God's active presence, could apparently be trusted to move through this moment of intimacy without moral failure. Pause. This is what I meant... When I said that the specifics of the action here cannot be a universal precedent for us. It cannot be. You cannot use the, well, they did it, argument to do something that we know. We don't have to go into details what we're talking about, right? Uh, to go into something that we know is morally, morally questionable from the outside and temptation creating from the inside of that situation. Always err on the side of of righteousness, of holiness and integrity, both in outside perception of that relationship and inside actions. Does that make sense? Right? Don't put yourself in a situation that you know, put it this way, is beyond your moral fail-safe. And always assume that your moral fail-safe is nowhere near as high or as strong as you think it is. As I've heard you say in the past, build your walls high and back. (laughs) Right? Be safe. Stay back from that line so there's no danger. Make that your standard of practice. If you're single or know someone who's single and you start feeling romantically about someone and assuming those feelings are reciprocated, then by all means, if they're the right kind of one, right, pursue that relationship. But, all caps, do it with safeguards in place for your testimony and your witness and your faith in Christ. 
Friends to keep you accountable. Integrity and witness as of paramount importance. And the glory of Christ, the glory of Christ as the key, central, and ultimate goal of that relationship in whatever way. That should be the goal of marriage. That should be the goal of dating. That should be the goal of parenting. That should be... People want, want, come to me occasionally sometimes and want advice. Or, what do I do about this or that? You know where I take them? Back to the gospel. Because everything we do, every relationship we have, every action we take should point there. It should. And one of the ways we do that is to build our, build our safeguards way back. So part of the peril, in addition to the opportunity to indulge temptation, again, as we kind of pointed out, is what others might have thought. As Christ followers, I'll only say this. As Christ followers, we don't, we don't do everything and weigh everything we do by what someone else might think, but you have to consider the impact of your actions on your testimony for Christ as a Christian, as a married Christian and a single Christian, right? So we see the peril, and then we see what we're going to call the pursuit. Verses 8 and 9. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. Behold, a woman lay at his feet. Can you you picture that for a minute? Guys, go back to when you're not married, and you're sleeping, and then you wake up, and there's a woman at your feet. Kind of startling. Maybe, I'm not going to go there. (laughs) I was going to say different kind of startling depending on the woman, but I won't say that out loud. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman laid his feet and he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Here's that phrase again. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. I love this. So Ruth goes through with the plan and she knows that Boaz has been generous to her. But she also knows from Naomi that there's more he can do as a redeemer. Add to that the probability at this point she may have really maybe begun to have some real legitimate feelings for him at this point. But for any of that to be realized, developed and eventually enjoyed, she was going to have to pursue it. That's what she's doing here. Now, one side note that came to my mind is this is like this is like our faith in that we don't have faith unless God calls us to faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Uh, completely able to do what he says he can do and what he will do, God always will save. But we, however, must choose to place our faith in him, responding to his work in us. that make sense? Same thing like this. Our discipleship, 2 Peter chapter 1 you talked about. Our discipleship and everything that God asks of us, holiness, growth, uh, development, maturity in our faith, it's... It's up to you, but it's up to him. We have to do those things. We have to put in the work. You have to open your Bible and read the words and process them with your brain. But without him working in you, you will get nothing from that. Right? You have to pursue it, but you have to be dependent and reliant on the grace of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It is God who causes growth. That's a true life paradox, paradox, but it is in fact true. Now back to the story, just a side note. I won't chase that rabbit too far. Boaz woke up and saw that Ruth had uncovered his feet, probably taking part of that robe that he was covering himself with and uncovering his feet and covering herself. And he he understands what's going on here. And then there's this beautiful little phrase. Ruth says, spread your wings. Ask him to spread his wings over his servant. And again, how do we know, I'm thinking, how do we know that much more is going on here than just innuendo? If you remember, I mentioned John Piper, who wrote the book Sweet and Bitter Providence, and I'm going to reference him a couple of times tonight again. He, makes this, he draws this great parallel that I'd never seen. The only other place, he says, in the Old Testament where the phrase spreading the wings occurs in relation to lovers is found in Ezekiel 
God is describing Israel as a young maiden with whom he took for his wife, whom he took for his wife. When I passed by you again, it says, and saw you, and behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you, literally spread my wings over you, and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. That is awesome. Yet another way that we see that Boaz and Ruth are indeed, they're interested in each other. There are romantic overtones to the story, but there is way more than a romance going on here. The story points us to the ultimate romantic pursuit. That is Christ coming for his bride. And you might ask, why do I take such interest in that, in the this, in this scandalous kind of idea? Because when you stop and think about it, the gospel is kind of scandalous. It's kind of crazy. You don't think so? That a holy God who has every right to blot out my name because I have sinned against him takes interest in me and pursues me? What? That is crazy. But that's exactly what happened for those of us who have faith in Christ because we've responded to him. That's exactly what happened. My God, my Savior, has pursued me as a groom after his bride. A messed up, soiled, impure, sinful, promiscuous, unfaithful bride. Yet not only did he pursue me, but when he found me, he erased the eternal consequences of all my sin. And began to remake me into what his bride should be. Holy, blameless. All this he did when it was his right His immutable, unchangeable, undeniable right to condemn me forever. And to me, that's kind of scandalous. Gloriously, marvelously scandalous. And I'm grateful for the scandalous grace of Jesus. Ruth, again, I still think was evidently to me coming to, we might use the modern term fall in love with Boaz. We use that term carefully. But I also think that Boaz's response here, we're going to see in a moment, Proves that he was maybe equally interested in her. Although it is restrained by his position and his older age. We'll get to that one in a second. In both cases, if a relationship was going to flourish and grace and favor was going to be given, it would have to be pursued. Ruth is doing that. And that leads to Boaz's response, first of which is the pledge. Verse 10, 13. 10 to 13. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. In that you have not gone after a young man, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. Boaz, quick reply, I think evidences me. He's, he's interested in what, what Ruth has pointed to, that he had been interested maybe for a while, but his integrity and his sense of propriety had restrained him, again, pointing to his God-shaped character. She was considerably younger than him, uh, and, and as he said, you have not gone after young men, and he framed her interest in him as a kindness shown to an older man. That kind of... 
caught me. I, I thought that was interesting. If you consider Deuteronomy 25, 5, in which the obligation of a kinsman redeemer to perpetuate the line. This is, this is what this means. 25, 5, the kinsman redeemer would perpetuate the line of a deceased brother by marrying his widow. Uh, and it's specifically designated first to a brother or brother-in-law. It starts at the closest kin. So if you consider that, we don't know really how a distant relation is here. We don't know if Boaz legally bore any real obligation. We know the custom is there, but is he really morally obligated? We don't really know that. What I like about this is this points that Ruth or Boaz, what he does is possibly more out of interest than obligation. I think that's important. Here's why. What Christ did at the cross for you, he did out of his love. He did for two reasons. One, and most importantly, for God's own glory. Secondly, his love for you. Not his obligation to you. Because he's not. He's not obligated to you. He loves you. He died for you and he he pursued you and he wants you to pursue him. Boaz's pledge, I will do what you ask of me, parentheses, because I'm interested. Christ's pledge, I died for you, I extend my grace to you, and I'm pursuing you because I'm interested, because I love you. The pledge is in fact one of love, of desire, and not of obligation. That, to me, makes it much, much better. So we see the pledge, and then we see the protection. This is in verse 14. And we've seen these before, this before, these next two, next two points. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize one another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Very quick note. Although moral integrity had been maintained between Ruth and Boaz, neither of them wanted, if they could, within their ability to allow opportunity for their integrity to be marred. So Boaz apparently said to anyone else who was there, probably his servants, his people, to keep it secret. And as we saw, pointed out way back in chapter 1, or the beginning of chapter 2, these men, these people, would have had complete trust in Boaz because they knew his character. If he had a secret to be kept, it was for a good reason. He could be trusted. Your integrity matters. Guard it. Guard it. Do so by not putting yourselves in situations, maybe like this one, in the first place. So he's protecting Ruth's honor, if you will. But even in that moment, again, Boaz extends... Ruth protection, he also extends her provision. Look at verse 15. And he said, bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. And she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Again, Boaz provides, as he has before, numerous times by this point, for Ruth and Naomi's physical needs by sending Ruth home with barley. We've seen it as a recurring theme all through the book. Uh, And here we simply 
just have another reminder that God, no matter what He's doing and where, He always provides for what we need. Dwayne said that this morning. He always provides for what we need. He first completely pays for and provides your salvation. You get no credit for that. And He provides everything we need for life and godliness. 2 Peter chapter 1 again. Although we have to bear some of the cost in fleshing that out. He even provides, maybe especially provides for, for physical needs and emotional needs and mental needs and spiritual needs. He provides for us through grace upon grace and gift upon gift. And, but that is only had if we seek refuge under his wings by faith in Christ. And I will briefly point back to chapter 1. That all of that, we have to be careful when we're talking about those responses in grace. You can't make it about the gifts. Because sometimes the gifts don't come. But that doesn't make his grace any less worthy. Any less marvelous. Right? There is a phrase. I may get myself in trouble, but if if this is the worst thing I say to get myself in trouble ever, I'll be in good shape. Let me see if I can remember it. Faith is not believing God can, it's knowing God will, is the way that phrase goes. And I think that is, if you're talking about applying that across the board, it is completely off the mark. It is completely off the mark. Faith is absolutely believing and knowing without a doubt that God can, and then trusting Him whether He does or not. Now I'll move on. Next we see, and this is interesting, this one falls back to Ruth. They've been Boaz for a couple of points here, and the last one is, and this is a word we just don't like. Ruth is asked to have some patience. I can hear the moans. Patience. She replied, verse 18, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. At least she didn't have to have patience for long, right? Ruth is told she's done her part up to this point. She's done what she can. She now has to wait for her Redeemer to do his part, his promised part, and to do so rightly. Now, when we're moving from life seasons from one to another, from one day to the next, from one faith matter to the next, through our spiritual growth, it's just important that you take each step that comes in front of you the right way is the right time. You move with integrity, but you move when God says move. And day by day, remember we talked about uh, the end of chapter 1, where she went back to her every day, you just keep moving every day, right? And you do it in integrity. But when you've done your part, particularly when you're talking about maybe a decision or a relationship, uh, Tim talked about a decision this morning, right? When, when, you, when you know you've done your part, rest. Rest. When you know you've done your part, rightly, in God's leadership and God's direction, rest. Think about this relationally for a minute. You may have heard me say this before. There's your part, God's part, God's part, and their part. Pointed the wrong way. There's your part, their part, and God's part when you're talking about any relationship. Let's say you have a friendship that, for whatever reason, is damaged, strained, forgiveness is needed, apologies are needed for both parties, let's say. Let's say both parties are believers here as well, and as a believer, you're seeking to live peaceably, right? And to live in unity with your fellow believers, obligated, scripturally, to attempt a reconciliation. However, you can only do your part. Whatever that part is. In this frame, we're going to say, if it's, if it's a reparation, all you can do is ask forgiveness. You can't make them give it. You can't make them ask for it. <laughs> Similarly, in the Christian life, as we've talked about, you have to do your part. You have to do the work of your spiritual growth. You have to be in the Word. You should be praying. You should be giving. You should be attending church. 
uh, worship, participating in the body. You should be serving somewhere. You should be worshiping with your local church. You do your part, and God does his part. That is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I think it's 1 Corinthians. I may have that reference wrong. God causes the growth. He causes the maturity. He causes the faith that will make you, over time, less like you and more like him. If you do your part, trusting God to do his part, then day by day, you'll become a more fully devoted follower of Christ. Now think about this. If you do your part, trusting God to do his part, and your brothers and sisters in your faith family are doing their part, then your church will step by step become more fully devoted to the gospel and the specific mission that God gives it. Gospel will be perpetuated. Hell will be less populated. Christ will be honored. God will be glorified and the church will grow. Now that depends on God doing his part and everybody in the proper way as well as at the proper times doing their part. And sometimes, and we don't like this, sometimes that means resting and waiting. Now, I want to leave you with a term, a little bit of a departure here, and we'll bring it back at the end. I want to leave you with a term from Piper that caught me, that was an interesting term. And I see what he's talking about, so give me a couple minutes to unfold it, okay? And the term is this, strategic righteousness. So that's it, because that's like a, what? Now, before we go forward, we know that our, the only true righteousness that any of us have at all comes imputed to us from Christ. We have no real righteousness of our own, right? So just keep that in mind. Make sure that's there as we go forward and we frame the words, our righteousness, they're framed in that, okay? Think about it this way. And this is just another term to talk about things we've, we talk about all the time. We talked about them this morning. There is a kind of righteousness that simply avoids evil, Okay? When someone is an infant in Christ, for example, oftentimes all they know for sure is that there's some things they shouldn't be doing anymore. Don't go to those places. Don't engage in that activity. Don't hang around with those people. Don't, don't go there. Don't do that. I mean, some of, some of the, our young believers, that's all they know. The sad, joy-draining, pastor-frustrating, church-hobbling truth is that many people never grow past that. You know, right? We may start doing some stuff, but the bulk of our testimony often stands on the things that we don't do anymore. Strategic righteousness moves past that, takes initiative, puts in the thought. It orders the life. It dreams the dreams. It thinks about how to be growing in Christ, to be doing gospel work, to be find places to serve. We had another opportunity unfolded before our church that some of our people are going to take, take, take part in. So strategic righteousness moves beyond infancy, moves beyond just not sinning. Surely there's more to the Christian life than just not sinning. Don't you think? Rather than trying to figure out what that is and how to do that, I thought, how do you, how do you get there? This is going to sound familiar. You know what drives a person? You know what moves, begins to move a person from an immature righteousness to strategic righteousness? You, you know what gives a person that glimpse of that there's something further down the road than where I am? You know what really makes a person want to be used more and more and more and more by the person who saved their life? Little familiar word. Hope. There it is again. Hope helps us Dream. 
Help helps us think up ways to do good and not just to avoid evil. I'm going to go back to Piper again because I, I like this. The sheer fact that Naomi has a strategy teaches us something. Listen to this. People who feel like victims rarely make plans. As long as Naomi was oppressed, as long as she could only say, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me, she conceived no strategy for the future. One of the reasons we must help each other, hope in God, from Psalm 42, 5, is that only hopeful people, hopeful families, and hopeful churches plan and strategize. Churches that feel no hope develop a maintenance mentality or just go through the motions, go through the calendar year in and year out. But when a church feels the sovereign kindness of God hovering overhead and moving, hope starts to thrive and righteousness simply ceases to simply be the avoidance of evil and begins active and strategic. Friends, I ask you, where is our hope? Do not ever ever hope in me. Don't hope in Dwayne. Don't hope in Brent. Don't hope in the church. Don't hope in the government. Hope in Christ. Revel and stand and rest in the righteousness that has been imparted to you through your faith in Him and His finished work on the cross and the empty tomb. Romans 8.24 says, Hope that is seen is not hope. I've tied that to another verse. This may be more familiar. Psalm 27, 20 verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some people do trust the church to be their savior, their mediator, their helper. Some people do trust in their riches Some people trust in their ministry. Some in their pastor. Here's what we need to tell ourselves in that and one another and other people. Stop it. Stop it. Don't hope in me or the church or your faithfulness or your scorecard or your righteousness or your past or the fact that you grew up in a Christian home or any of that. Center, anchor, ground, root your hope in Christ and his gospel. Then, once you know you're in, like Ruth the Moabitess, once you know you're in, then, and you begin to know there's more than just not sinning involved in this Jesus thing, Think strategically. Who or what in my life needs to be made right? What in my life needs attention? How can I worship Jesus better? And not just singing. That's not what worship is, by the way, in case you're wondering. Especially, I would say, in the area of serving others. Who who do I know that I can begin to pray for, communicate with, invite to church or small group, show kindness to, be generous with, offer to pray for, any other number of ways... That you can be strategic and intentional in growing in Christ. This this one doesn't really end with a with a with a big bang. <laughs> Your hope should be in Christ alone. And then out of that flows a life that seeks to be more effective and intentional and on mission and strategic with Him. With it and in it. With and in that hope for the forward progress of the gospel. Both in your own life and in your church, in our town, in our state, 
in our world. And I'll leave you with one other thought. The forward progress of the gospel within your circle. Because God gave you that circle. The only other thing I can think to say is, when someone in your circle needs to hear the gospel, the answer is not calling Dwayne to go talk to him. They're in your circle, not his. And if we're living in a hope that's in Christ and we're seeking to be used by him, eventually you come to realize, God put them in my circle. I'm going to pray for them and God, you tell me what to do. Now, I'm looking around the room and I I think I know everybody's testimony here enough to know that I think everybody here knows Christ tonight. But I will say, as I have to do every single time, because you never know when God's going to open somebody's heart. Hey, you know that thing you thought you had? What was it, 21? You know that thing you thought you had? You ain't got it. If God touches your heart that way tonight, I don't have this hope. I don't have this faith. I don't have that joy. Um, you come see us after. We'll, we'll help you know how to get that taken care of. We're just going to sing a song that's simply a, a well-familiar song. Jesus paid it all, the gospel and what he's done for us. And as we sing that together as a faith family, let's just stand and sing in the, and sing of the hope of what he's done for us. God, thank you, Father, for a beautiful gospel story, a beautiful romantic story, uh, and a beautiful text of scripture. Uh, and for, Lord, thank you that it keeps, it keeps pointing us to the same place. It keeps pointing us to Jesus. I'm so grateful for that. Uh, and Lord, you know, I don't know every story in the room well enough to know what that next step is, what that next strategic move is of spiritual growth or action or service, but you do. And the probability is that most of the hearts in this room, they do too. Lord, I pray that you would help us take that next step, motivated by and grounded in hope that is in Christ. So you begin to work now, Lord, as we sing to you and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.